Hello, and welcome to the Church on the Hill podcast. If you enjoy this podcast, we invite you to join us live this Sunday at 500 Sands Drive in San Jose, California. Visit churchonthehill.com for service times and directions, and also to learn more about connecting, growing, and serving at Church on the Hill. Now let's join lead pastor Scott Simarok as he teaches at Church on the Hill. So we're week three in, a, probably, in an incredibly important series for us because we're talking about redefining the mission of our church. And we're looking at the five top values of our church. And so uh, here it is, our, our mission and our values, the things that drive us. And hopefully you've got it down by now, right? The mission of our church, ready? Displaying the irresistibility of Jesus so that lives are transformed. That's what we're about. That's the mission that we're trying to accomplish. And last week we talked about the number one value of our church. And number one value of our church is what? Crowded heaven. It's about prioritizing those who are beyond our walls. Now, it's so fun because when I get to preach this, I get emails back and conversations with people say, so crowded heaven, if we prioritize those who are not here, who are off the hill, who don't have a relationship with Jesus, like what does that mean for our church? Like when we gather together on Sunday mornings, does this then, what what we do on Sunday mornings, this worship gathering, is this 100% directed then at people who don't know Jesus? Because that could feel kind of weird. Like, why, if I'm a Christian, then do you have anything to offer me on a Sunday morning? Well, let me clarify a couple things there. First, this is actually how we do this on Sunday morning. This is for you as a believer. This is for you to get filled up, to hear God's word, to have your soul filled up so that we can sing and worship God who saved us. This is for you. But we want to do this in such a way that someone who has a very small church background or no church background at all, that they will come in here and understand what's happening. Y'all been to a church before where you walked in and they're like, kneel down, stand up, say something in Latin. And you're like, dude, I'm lost. We're like five minutes in. I have no idea what's happening. And it's not spiritually enlightening to you. It's actually socially intimidating. And the concept of God with you is lost because you're like, man, they're doing stuff that I just don't have a clue about. So I, I say it like this a lot, particularly when I teach. Um, I want to take the gospel and the truths of God's word, and I want to put them on the bottom shelf for people. You've heard me say that before, right? Now, let me tell you what it doesn't mean and what it does mean. It doesn't mean that at this church, when we, we here's the Bible and there's some difficult uh, sayings in here, there's some difficult teachings, we just avoid all the d- tough stuff. No, 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 no. That's not what we do. Putting the gospel on the bottom shelf, putting the truths of scripture on the bottom shelf, what it means is we're putting it within reach of almost everyone. We make it accessible to them. But what it doesn't mean is this. It doesn't mean that, mean that we swim in the shallow end of the theological pool. Are you with me? We, we, we jump into the deep end of the pool, but we're going to say it in such a way that at least it's within reach for people who don't have a Bible background or church background. You with me? Because if we don't do it that way, you know what we are? We're kind of an elitist church that says, listen, welcome to Church on the Hill. Half of you will understand what I'm about to say. Congratulations. And if you don't, I guess you can just keep coming, maybe figure it out one day. That's not the kind of church you want to be. Because we value crowded heaven, so people who aren't yet headed there can come in and they can feel welcomed here. Question, if you actually shared your faith and shared your story and invited somebody to church, 
And we did a church where we didn't put it on the bottom shelf. And they, your friend, your family member, your coworker walks in, your neighbor walks in, and they're like, I have no idea what happened inside that room. That's not welcoming to them. And it's not a crowded heaven. We want you to have a church where you feel confident that you can bring your unsaved neighbor, friend, coworker, and go, you know what? It, it made sense to them. They might not agree with what we teach. They might go, you know what? I'm not sure about all this. This is new to me. But it wasn't confusing. See the bottom shelf? It's about clarity, clarity, clarity. You with me on that? Okay. That's last week, though. We haven't even gotten into this week. So uh, here we go. This week, another value for us is this. And this is not going to be the first time that you've heard this if you've been around with us. Here it is. It's tattered Bibles. We value wearing out Bibles because we've been wearing them out since 1850. That's how old this church is. 172 years old. Second oldest Baptist church in uh, California. Uh, let me ask you a quick question, though. How many of you, uh, how many copies of the Bible do you have in your house? I mean, think about it for a sec. And your phone doesn't count, all right? How many paper copies? The average uh, home in America actually has 4.3 Bibles in their house. I don't know what the point three is, if that's like the Gospels alone in a little book or whatever, but 4.3. Uh, 85% of U.S. households own a Bible. Now in that version app on your phone, right? That one. Do you know how many Bible versions you can get on your phone? 2,600 Bible versions, including uh, 1,760 languages. We have crazy access to the Bible, no matter what language you speak. And here's what's crazy too. I was, we were in church like, I don't know, it might've been a, a year ago now. And um, there's a couple that was sitting out here and they were on their phones. They're like, I'm preaching. And they're like, and I was like, dang, they ain't paying attention. I'm gonna preach to that section right there where they're sitting there on their phones. And I'm just, I'm, I'm trying to teach right here, right? I found out later, um, they're, they're now our friends from Belarus. They're on Google Translate. And they're listening to the entire message on their phone as it's translating. I was like, that is so amazing that anyone speaking any language could come in here. And as long as Google can do it, they can hear it. Isn't that amazing? We have so much access to the word of God, but the question is kind of like this, um, but are we wearing out our Bibles? We have so much access to this treasure called the word of God, the wisdom of God, the gospel, the good news, but do we actually end up reading it? So, and, and by the way, I will say this, this is actually a fairly new feature. And when we say fairly new feature, like the gospel's 2,000 years old, right? I mean, Jesus came 2,000 years ago. And so, but how long, how long has it, did it start where the pastor, when he opened a message, said, okay, everyone, would you turn to your Bibles and open up to 1 Thessalonians? That's where we're going to be today, by the way, so open there. That's actually only the last 400, 500 years that pastors started their messages that way. You know why? Because no one owned a Bible, People didn't have access to them. And if they did 500 years ago, it was typically written in Latin, which the common reader couldn't even read. It's just really in the last 400 years, obviously Gutenberg Press had something to do with that. So when Paul writes about in 1 Thessalonians, he says, we shared with you the gospel of God. What do we think he means when he says that? Well, we think Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, the written gospels, right? No, 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 no. 
he was referring to this spoken story about Jesus. See, sometimes we read the Bible and we read it in context of our terms today. And we forget this. No, no, no. When this was spoken, when this was finally written down by Paul in 1 Thessalonians, when he mentions the gospel, it's simply this audible story of Jesus that they just heard. And if you think about it, some of you are so like technical and like prove it to me and you want to read it and figure it out and search it out. No, no, no. You know what converted them? You know what changed them? He just told them the story of Jesus. And people decided to follow Jesus because of that. Now, are you open to 1 Thessalonians? A lot of you, when I said that, you just looked at me and I know you're not looking it up. So open your Bibles. It's our privilege to have it. So open it up. 1 Thessalonians, whether it's on your phone or paper. Um, do you know how you got an English translation of the Bible? Let me tell you a story. There was an Englishman named William Tyndale. He was born in 1494. And to put this in context, it was actually 38 years before he was born that the Gutenberg printing press was invented, all right? But there was not an English version of the Bible that was ready to be translated or printed uh, on this Gutenberg press. Uh, what you had was this. You had a Latin copy of the Bible, which was only good for priests and the, the religiously and academic elite because they're the only ones who read the common person. They, didn't even, they couldn't afford a Bible, much less even if they had one written in Latin, they couldn't read it. By the time Tyndall was born, there was actually a German copy of the Bible and a French translation of the Bible. Bibles often were chained to the pulpit of the Catholic Church, right? I mean, not this kind of pulpit. I go with barstool table, sorry. But the massive pulpit would be chained to the table because it was so valuable, um, they would have manuscript portions in monasteries, but people just didn't own the Bible. The Bible was actually only for these people who could understand Latin, for the academic and religious elite. William Tinsdale, though, um, Tyndale, he was actually brilliant. Uh, he spoke seven languages, and he could read uh, the, the New Testament Greek and the Old Testament Hebrew. He had a brilliant mind. And at the age of 29, 29, not 69, not 59, at the age of 29, God put a passion in, inside him that was this. He want, this was his goal. I want to put a Bible in the hand of every Englishman and every Englishwoman. That was his goal. He was the first one to write an English translation of the Greek New Testament, from the Greek New Testament and the Hebrew Old Testament. He was the first one to accomplish that. But there was a problem with it, because when you're the writer and that's what you're going to do for years to come, you have to have some funding, someone who's going to pay you to do that, not only to do the writing while you're working on it, but to actually produce the printing of it. So he went to the Catholic Bishop of London, and he was denied. We're not only not funding you, but he was told this. If you do a translation in the common English and you're going to put it in the hands of common people? We believe that is heresy. That will never happen. He fled to Germany so that he could find space just to write and to print this Bible. Once the, the, um, the, the Tyndale Bible was printed, they smuggled them into England. But the authorities of the church found out that they were smuggling these English Bibles in. So you know what they did? They bought them all. 
We're not going to let them to get in the hands of the common person. The funny and ironic part of it, their purchase of the Bible actually funded Tyndale to print more Bibles. That happened twice. Eventually, William Tyndale, uh, in his move to Germany, he was, from that moment on, he was on the run. He was in hiding because he was afraid if the English authorities ever caught up with him, they would jail him. The religious authorities would try him as a heretic, turn him over to the English authorities, and he would be martyred. He had a friend, or at least he thought he was his friend. His name was Henry Phillips. Henry Phillips was one of the few people in his circle that he would have dinner with, and eventually he would show him his writings, all the things that he was translating. And uh, Henry Phillips, though, was paid enough money to lead a 41-year-old William Tyndale out of his house and betray him and turn him over to the authorities. He was arrested, tried, convicted as a heretic. And at the age of 42, he was gathered in this town in the Netherlands, and the English officials showed up and took their seats to watch as he was tied and chained to a beam. And then around his feet was put brush, sticks, and lumber, and then gunpowder poured all over that. Around his neck was a rope and a chain, and the executioner first strangled the man, and then they burned him. And at age 42, Friday, October 6th, he was martyred for his faith. He was martyred so that you and I could hold in our hands an English Bible. The king at the time was Henry VIII. And it was less than a year later that Henry VIII actually commissioned someone to write an English translation of the Bible. He flipped in less than a year. The writer who was commissioned to do that, you know whose work he used? William Tyndale, his Bible. The King James Version of the Bible hadn't even been out yet. It was actually coming uh, maybe a hundred years later. Uh, whenever the translators of the King James Bible, they're like, I don't know what to do with this passage. Like, what, what do we do with it? Eight out of 10 times, you know whose translation they used and who they went with? William Tyndale. Because of how brilliant and accurate he was in doing his translation. Um, Church historians note this, Tyndale's work is the most significant contribution to the English Bible that you and I hold today, but it cost him his life. So let me ask this question. Here's our question for the day. I know you're all getting nervous because I've kind of been going on. You're like, we haven't even gotten into the notes yet. Why tattered Bibles? It's the question in your notes. I want you to take a look at this. I'm just going to give you um, five reasons why I think tattered Bibles should be in our top five values. And why it shouldn't just be a value of our church, but it actually should be a personal value for you. So I know you're all in First Thessalonians right now. So uh, take a look there. There's two major sections where Paul addresses the word of God or the gospel. And I'm going to read it to you. It starts in chapter one, verse four. It says this, for we know brothers and sisters loved by God that he has chosen you because our gospel came to you not simply with words, but also with power, with the Holy Spirit and deep conviction. You know how we lived among you for your sake. Drop down to verse 13 of chapter 2. Chapter 2, verse 13. 
He picks this up. This next section is also about the, the scriptures. He says, we also thank God continually because you received the word of God, which you heard from us. You accepted it not as human word, but as it actually is the word of God, which indeed, which is indeed at work in you who believe. For you, brothers and sisters, became imitators of God's churches in Judea, which are in Christ Jesus. You suffered for your own people the same thing those churches suffered from the Jews. From these two passages, I want to give you five things that I noticed of why we value tattered Bibles, why we want to be wearing them out. Here's the first one. It's the power to evangelize. My my note on it is this, that Paul's spoken gospel, it had the power to drop people's resistance. But today we have the privilege of the written gospel. Um, I kind of wish I was there. I mean, there's things about history that I'm glad I wasn't there. But there's also moments like, I wish I was there in Thessalonica when Paul showed up. So that I knew what this meant. When he says this, for you know, brothers and sisters, verse 4, loved by God, he's chosen you. Because our gospel came to you. When we told you the Jesus story... It didn't come with simply with words, but with power, with the Holy Spirit, with deep conviction. What was that? Like, what do you mean? Like, did he do something and then there was these crazy miracles? I mean, did he, like Jesus, start breaking bread and fish and feed that 5,000? Well, here's what's interesting. If you go to Acts 17, here's the story of the Thessalonian church. Um, Paul's writing to this church that he had visited, and let me just read this to you. He says, when Paul and his companions had passed through Amphipolis and Apollonia, they came to Thessalonica, where there was a Jewish synagogue. As was his custom, Paul went in the synagogue, and on three Sabbath days, he reasoned with them from the scriptures. Now, pause and listen to that for just a second. How many weeks was he there? Maybe he was saying, hey, I skipped a a Sunday in there. He's like a, you know, he's like a guy who goes to church in California, right? He was like there like half the time. Maybe he was there six weeks. I'm just playing with y'all. Are you okay? I know I'm like being rude. I apologize. He was there three Saturdays in a row because it was a Sabbath day, right? Because he's like you. He never misses church. Verse three, explaining and proving that the Messiah had to suffer and rise from the dead. So here was his message. It was all about Jesus. This Jesus I'm proclaiming to you, he's the Messiah, he said. Now some of the Jews were persuaded and joined Paul and Silas and did a large number, as did a large number of God-fearing Greeks and quite a few prominent women. So guess, get this, here's the story. He was there for three Saturdays. He explained the death and the resurrection of Jesus to them. The results were this. There were some Jews who were persuaded and they were converted. And there were a large number of God-fearing Greeks and quite a few prominent women. But then it says this, verse 5, But other Jews were jealous, so they rounded up some bad characters from the marketplace, formed a mob, and started a riot in the city. They rushed to Jason's house in search of Paul and Silas in order to bring them out to the crowd. But when they did not find him, they dragged Jason and some other believers before the city officials, shouting, These men who have caused trouble all over the world have come here now, and Jason has welcomed them into his house. They are all defying Caesar's decrees, saying that there is another king, one called Jesus. When they heard this, the crowd and the city officials were thrown into turmoil. Then they made Jason and the others post bond and let them go. Verse 10, as soon as it was night, the believers sent Paul and Silas away to Berea. On arriving there, they went to the Jewish synagogue. 
So when he writes him a letter, he says, our gospel, our story of Jesus that we told you, it came not to you simply with words, but also with power, with the Holy Spirit, and with deep conviction. Apparently, Paul was only there for three weeks. Uh, maybe a little bit more, a month. Maybe at the most, two months. And all of a sudden, some of these Jewish people are like, you know what, you're right. We're going to follow Jesus. And when, when it says these God-fearing Greeks, these are people who, they, they would actually follow the, the Jewish tradition, even though they were Greek. And then there were some really prominent women there. And all of a sudden, in that three-week period of time, they're like, you know what? We've been trained and raised, and our families all do this. We're going to leave all of that behind, and we're going to follow Jesus. Their whole religious world just changed in three weeks. And I think that's what Paul was referring to. When we told you the story, here's what it was. It's only God that changes somebody that fast. Think about this. How were you raised? Atheist, agnostic, Catholic, Hindu, Buddhist? Can you imagine someone? They didn't even come to you with this, like, hey, let me show you in the book how it actually happened. You can trust these words. They're like, no, no, no. Let me tell you a story. There was a man. His name was Jesus. And after telling the story and you hearing it and reasoning who this Jesus was that came back to life, the greatest miracle in the history of the world, you're like, I'm going to leave all of my religious past behind. I'm going to follow Jesus and only him. That only happens when the power of God comes alive in someone. It's when God wakes up someone's soul. And so when Paul writes, remember that time that we shared that story and the gospel came with power and the Holy Spirit and came with deep conviction. So why tattered Bibles? It's about the power to evangelize. So let me say this. Some of you might go, evangelize, what is that? Let me put it on the bottom shelf for you. It means when you tell the story of Jesus to somebody who doesn't know it, follow it, or believe it, that there might actually be conviction there. That they go, you know, I don't, might not totally understand all of it, but I'm intrigued. And eventually they say, I want it, and I'm hungry for it. A Jesus who loved me enough to die on the cross for me? Yes. Do you know what that is? Their ability to say yes is the power of God. Later on, Paul, based off of all of his experience, he would write the book of Romans. And the book of Romans chapter 1, verse 16, makes this great statement. He says, I'm not ashamed of the gospel. I'm not ashamed of the story of Jesus. But then he writes this, don't miss this. Because it, the gospel, the story of Jesus, it is the power of God that brings salvation to everyone who believes, first to the Jew, then to the Gentile. If you're a Christian, do you remember when it happened to you? Maybe he's a friend a parent that was speaking to you. Maybe it was a pastor that was talking to you. Maybe it was in this very room that you heard something and you're like, I need that. I want that. I believe that's true. And you're like, I don't have anybody in my life who loves me like that. And if Jesus will love me like that, yes. Maybe it was actually the evidence of the scriptures of, of the resurrection of Jesus. That you're like, wow, he appeared to people over 40 days. And at one point he showed up alive to 500 people. You're like, I'm in. I believe it. Do you remember when that happened to you? Do you remember that it wasn't just an intellectual thing? That somehow in the midst of that, your heart started breaking. That you knew you needed Jesus. That's the power of God. Why do we cherish and value tattered Bibles? Because it contains the gospel story of Jesus. Paul didn't even have this to work with. He had his experience with Jesus and just the story, and he told him. 
You and I have the benefit of having this written down in the Word of God, the Gospels of Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, that we can share with people. And as we do, God will empower that to change people's lives. Let me give you this next one. The second is to change uh, the power to actually for people to change. Did you know this, that the evidence of a changed life is actually this, it's sacrificial living? The power of God that showed up in them. Here's what you do. When you have a question like, what does that mean? You actually go to the text and let the text define the text. Jump up to verse three. Here's what it says there. He says, we remember this about you. We remember before our God and Father, your work produced by faith, your labor prompted by love, and your endurance inspired by hope in our Lord Jesus Christ. These, uh, these new Christians in the city of Thessalonica, the three words that described them, you worked, you labored, and you endured. And we now know from Acts 17, they endured suffering and persecution and jail. These new Christians, they were driven by their faith, hope, and love to work hard for what? For the gospel, not to earn anything, but so that other people might find out about Jesus. Why tattered Bibles? It has the, the power to change what we love. And it has the power to change our priorities. Here's the third thing, and I need to move through this a little quicker here. So it's the power to hear from God. This verse 13 of chapter 2, go back there. Chapter 2, verse 13 says this, When you received the word of God, which you heard from us, you accepted it not as a human word, but as it actually is the word of God. That word to receive, you know that that's actually a hospitality word? If someone shows up at your door and you receive them, you're actually welcoming them into your house. Like, hey, go wherever you want to go. You got refrigerator rights. Help yourself. Like, you're doing that. And what do you do inside that house? You don't just like welcome them in, turn them loose and be like, all right, whatever. No, no, you invite them in. You receive them and you build relationship in there. You're having conversations. You are together in that house. Paul says this, when you received when you let that word of God enter into you, you did it in such a way so that you could have relationship. The word of God, this gospel, is something that we receive so that it can instruct us. Later on, Paul would write this to his, uh, his young protege, Timothy. He says, all scripture, it's breathed from the mouth of God. And it's actually useful for teaching, rebuking, correcting, and training in righteousness so that the servant of God may be thoroughly equipped for every good work. Listen, there's, um, there's moments where you want to hear from God, don't you? You're like, God, I got a problem. God, I, I have a relationship problem. God, I have a financial problem. God, I have a self-esteem problem. God, I have an identity problem. God, would you just answer me? He's like, I have. It's here. Wear it out, because the questions that you have are actually found in here, the answers to the questions you have in life. And I, I would wonder, maybe in your community group this week, would you maybe bring this up? Like, what are the questions you have about life? And maybe your group can say, you know what, I, I think actually the book of Ecclesiastes talks about that. Or the book of Psalms talks about that. Or the book of Matthew talks about that. Bring your best questions about life and, and, and see if you might not hear from God and your group might be able to steer you in the right direction. Number four, why do we do tattered Bibles? It's the power to be transformed. 
Listen to this. The primary tool that God uses to transform us is his word. But it's his word by receiving it into our lives. Here's, look at verse 13 again. It says, The word of God that you received is indeed at work in you who believe. When you receive it, don't miss this, it is working in you. You know, it's really tough to change what we love. Do you know that? Because we love what we love and we want what we want. And it's super hard to change that. You know what the truth is? You actually can't change what you love. I know maybe you're in a bad relationship and you're like, I just don't want to love them anymore. But the problem is you do. Hey, try this sometime, parents. Try to stop loving your kids. They give you reason to, trust me, don't they? Man, they said that, did that, challenged you. Like, wow, they're not always lovable. Try to stop loving them, though. You can't. Sometimes in life, we love things that are not of God. But you know what? The only person who can change our hearts and what it is that we love is God himself. But he says this, I'll change you. But to be transformed, it begins with the renewing of your mind. By receiving the word of God. Um, I, I do want to say this, though. The Bible, and I wrote this in your notes, and it might seem a little weird. The Bible is not to be worshipped. Does that sound weird? The, the Bible is not to be worshipped. Rather, it, it's, it's a valuable tool that, that's the primary tool that will transform us. Um, you're like, well, how do you worship the Bible? Um, Let me say it this way. The Bible is a means to an end. You know that? Well, what's the end? A relationship with God through Jesus. The Bible helps us with that. It's part of our transformation. Um, Jesus actually railed on some people who worshiped the Bible. Listen to what he said in the book of John. He said, he's talking to these religious elite. He says this, you study the scriptures diligently because you think that in them, in the scriptures, you have eternal life. These are the very scriptures that testify about me, about Jesus, yet you refused to come to me to have life. Here's my point. You can read this. You can memorize it. But if this is the end goal is to just understand it, you miss the point. This is a tool. You could have an incredible knowledge of this. I have a friend, Dave, incredible knowledge of this. Doesn't believe it questions it all the time. He doesn't follow it, doesn't shape his heart. This is just a tool, but it is the number one tool to a transformed life. Um, How else are Bibles worshiped? Have you ever heard this? Maybe if you grew up in the South, this was big or like years ago. Have you ever heard someone say, you can't ever put a Bible cover on a Bible? Like, you know, a book cover, like don't ever cover it up because then you're hiding God's word. It's weird. It's not accurate. Have you ever heard someone say this? Like, there's a Bible sitting on the coffee table at your house, and like, you just came in, dropped another book on top of it. You're like, <gasps> and your grandma freaked out. And she's like, don't ever, don't ever put another book on top of the Bible. That's hiding the Bible, or that's elevating another book above the Bible. Technically, yeah, but that's just weird. It's actually not about the, pay, the, the, the ink and the paper. You know what I'm saying? Well, let me ask you this. How would you dispose of an old Bible? 
You know, like the binding falls out and like there's pages missing, your dog got it. I don't know, because you didn't value the Bible and put it up somewhere. I don't know. Like, how do you dispose of that? Do you ever have, have you ever thrown away a Bible? You're like, oh. Before you let it go into the trash, you're like, is this okay, God? You let it go and you're like, oh. There's actually people who go, listen, you never throw away a Bible. Whatever shape it is, if you can only read half of it, you send it, you recycle it. Not to a paper recycling. There's actually organizations that they will take your old Bible, rebind them, and send them overseas to some country that just doesn't have Bibles. Do you know that um, the Catholic, oh no, the Jewish tradition was this. If there was a scroll, some type of uh, biblical text that was no longer useful, it was so damaged, you just couldn't read it. To dispose of it, you had to bury it. I don't know if some of y'all got some old Bibles in your house that you're still holding on to because you don't know how to get rid of them, right? Other people said this, no, they need to be burned. I know like burning the Bible sounds terrible, doesn't it? See, maybe we have a really, really nice Bible in our house that's like all leather bound and it has these initials and you're like, I just keep it really, really nice. You don't worship this. Someone, friends of mine gave me a really nice Bible. I did their wedding and um, they gave me this really nice Bible. It comes in this really cool box and it has all this like purple satin around the box and the Bible sits in there. It's so pretty. I've never read it. Don't get me wrong. I read the Bible. I don't come up here and just make up stuff, all right? I just don't read that one. But it's interesting because maybe we have Bible worship if we have it sitting on our shelf somewhere, but we're not actually using it. Um, here's my last point, and I got to wrap this whole thing up. It's the power to overcome. And one of the very last verses I read to you, it says, it, it talks about them suffering. And you know, for you, brothers and sisters, became imitators of God's church, which are in Christ Jesus. You suffered from your own people the same thing the churches suffered from the Jews. Um, Here's what I think is tempting. When we suffer, I think that the question is this. We will somehow in our minds ask the question, did God really say that? The very first sin of the Bible, opening chapters of Genesis, a serpent comes to the woman and says, did God really say that you couldn't eat of that tree? Fast forward, Jesus in the wilderness, 40 days, Satan starts tempting Jesus. Does the Bible really say And it's questioning what the Bible says. Why? Because there's words of life in here that give us wisdom, knowledge, understanding of who God is so we can have an accurate relationship with him. And when we suffer and when we struggle, when you want to date that person who you know is not God's will for you, when you want to have that relationship, people do this all the time. Does the Bible really say, come on. When you want to take that job and you know that your family is going to suffer because of it, or you know you start getting involved in some sinful thing, you're like, well, really, does the Bible really say? When we want to live a life that's outside of God's design for us, we're going to question what the Bible says. So here's what we do. In order to overcome these obstacles, we need to put the Word of God in us and stay in God's Word. It's not something that we ever master because the goal is for it to master us as we obediently walk with Christ. Christianity Today, the publication, they put out their findings in April of this year, 
And in this survey that they conducted, they found this. 10% of Americans read the Bible every day. I was like, wow. I thought it would be less. But then again, we're from the Bay Area. We're not from a part of the country where 10 out of 12 people on your block go to church. But here's what's interesting. This study was actually done this last spring. 10% of Americans read the Bible daily. The problem with this is this, that in the last 12 months, it dropped by 14 points. It used to be 14% of Americans would read the Bible every day. And in the last couple of years, what have we had? Pandemic. One of their conclusions was this. Let me just quote to you. Isolation from other Christians has a lethal impact on private Bible reading. When people are not in church, they're not reminded of the blessings of Scripture and its importance for their lives. And they aren't encouraged by other Christians sharing about their own Bible reading. The pandemic, how did it affect your reading of God's Word? Maybe you're like desperate and you just dug in. But maybe you're like, listen, I'm, I'm discouraged. I'm this, I'm that, I'm the other. Maybe the pandemic was your best life ever. You worked from home and you just love being home all the time. And you're like, this is great. Did you know this? The greatest predictor of a child becoming spiritually healthy young adult walking with Jesus, you know what the greatest predictor is? Whether they read the Bible. You know that the greatest predictor of, a, of an adult Christian who has a healthy relationship with God, you know what the number one predictor is there? If they have a daily time in God's Word. The greatest influence on a believer's life is God's Word. William Tyndale knew it. And that's why he said, I'm going to give my life. He didn't know he was going to die for it. He thought he was going to give his whole living life <laughs> to the translation of the English Bible so that you and I could sit in a church and the pastor could say, turn with me to 1 Thessalonians. And then during the week, you could digest it. And here's my invitation to you this week, read chapter three, read, read it every day. And every day, let something new come out to you because God's word is so alive and so active that every day he'll bring something new to your attention. William Tyndale gave his whole life for that so that we could be blessed by it. I know it's a treasure, but the truth is this, um, we don't value it. And I'll, can I confess myself? There's days I don't value it. There's days I begrudgingly sit down with God and read and receive his word. I'm just being honest with you. I'm not fired up about it every day. Now when I'm done, I'm like, man, I'm really glad I did that. And there's other days, craziness happens, and I just walk into my day without reading God's Word. My habit now is my wife and I will sit together and we will read some Scripture and we'll pray every single day. We'll sit on our couch, look out the window, watch kids walk to school, pray for our family. And I hope and pray that God keeps changing my life because of it. I'm going to have our band come out right now. Um, and I, I want to read this to you. It's actually from Psalm 19. And the reason I'm going to read this is this, because... I don't ever want to guilt you, shame you, manipulate you to do something. I don't want to guilt you to read the Bible. Because if you do, you're going to wake up tomorrow morning, you're going to read it and be like, okay, check the box, did it. That's, that's not what we want to be about. 
Here's what I want to do. I want to help you recognize that this is the greatest tool that God has given us to know him and walk with him. And it will change you. And if we understand the value of it, we don't have to be convinced to do the things that we love. I just want you to understand that as you read this, you'll be confronted by a God who loves you. And his word is more valuable than anything that we have. And so Psalm 19 in verse 7 reads this way. And just absorb this for a moment. The law of the Lord is perfect, refreshing the soul. The statutes of the Lord, they're trustworthy, making wise the simple. The precepts of the Lord are right, giving joy to the heart. The commands of the Lord are radiant, giving light to the eyes. The fear of the Lord is pure, enduring forever. The decrees of the Lord are firm, and all of them are righteous. They are more precious than gold, than much pure gold. They're sweeter than honey, than honey from the honeycomb. Lord, your word, it's greater than, it, than what we understand. And I thank you for people like Tyndale, like Wycliffe, Calvin Luther, who valued your word to such a degree that they gave their whole lives to it so that we could have it. God, I would just ask that you would keep changing us and you would give us a deep, deep love for your word because God, we, we want tattered Bibles because Lord, I just think when we have our Bibles and they're tattered, our lives typically aren't. That when we're wearing out our Bibles, we're not worn out. We're actually, our souls are refreshed. So God, I would ask this this morning that you would wake us up to who you are and how you love us. You'd wake us up to your word and how great it is that we would just feast on it, not dabble in it, but that we would feast on it. I pray that more than just feeling good as we walk out these doors, that tomorrow morning there'd be something inside of us that just craves to know you. And then we'd open our Bibles and our lives would be a little more transformed tomorrow than they are today. And if you want that, church, would you simply say, amen.